I'm curious what it takes to become a successful stock picker. So anybody curious listening to this, both experienced people that want to become better stock pickers and those that have never picked a stock, what does it take to become a successful stock picker? Um, I think great investors all share a similar emotional makeup or mindset as well. I think they're contrarian by nature. I think that they think in terms of probabilities. They are comfortable being alone and looking wrong. They run from FOMO like the plague. They're independent thinkers that enjoy reading and thinking and connecting the dots. They understand that the crowd is average at best. They say no to almost everything, Bogomil, which is the exact opposite of what the average investor does. And finally, for mindset, they are confident in their talent and their work, but extremely humble. They are learning machines, and the only way to learn and grow is to be extremely open and honest about mistakes. Welcome to Talking Billions. We talk about big ideas, big inspirations, big topics. We take on the hardest subject of all, money. How to make it, save it, keep it. But our conversations lead us to an even bigger question what it means to live a rich life beyond money. My guests share their practices, principles, and evergreen wisdom. I'm your host, Bogumil Baranowski, author, TEDx speaker, investor, and a founding partner of Seacard Associates, a boutique investment firm founded in New York City. Join me on this quest to unearth the wisdom of the ages. Welcome, everyone. I'm so glad you're tuning into my podcast. For your convenience, the show is available on a multitude of platforms, including Spotify, Apple, Google, Audible, and many more. If you want to keep up with all new episodes, and there's so many more in the queue, make sure you subscribe and please do share it with friends and family. Review it and rate it if you can. Every little gesture matters, and I thank you for it. If you'd like to know more about me or if you're interested in getting in touch, Simply Google my name and it will lead you straight to my website. There is a contact form there or check notes to this episode for links. I love hearing how you listen to my podcast on your walks, hikes, alone times, drives, trips, and more. I trust that my guests and I are a wonderful company on those adventures. I also enjoy reading how some of you are rehearsing and answering some questions that I ask my guests. I love hearing that. If you're new to the show, please scroll down and check out all the amazing guests I've had over the last few months. If you are serious about investing, money wisdom, wealth, and living a better life, you'll find plenty of episodes with some incredible ideas. For those who enjoy reading thoughtful pieces, I regularly write articles on Substack, which I'm sure you'd find insightful. Find me there and follow me as well. Finally, I'd like to mention my latest book, Crisis Investing. It's a collection of 100 essays that I penned for our clients during the tumultuous times of the global COVID pandemic. These essays are both timely and timeless, providing a unique perspective on navigating through crises. They were never meant to be published, but here they are available to you. Please find the book on Amazon. The book has already received considerable recognition and much love, ranking among the top releases on Amazon in its initial weeks. Thank you for your support and for being a part of my listener community. Now, without further ado, let's dive into today's episode. 
My guest today is John Rotanti. He's a former senior analyst and head of investor training and development at The Motley Fool. After nine years at The Motley Fool, he's now an individual investor and a free agent figuring out his next steps. John is too modest to admit, but he has had a lot of success picking stocks throughout the years. And today he will share his insights, process and advice for anyone curious about finding good investments for the long run. I connected with John through Brad Barrett, best-selling author and a host of an award-winning podcast, Choose FI, where he shares his wisdom about financial independence. Brad was an earlier guest on the podcast, and we had one of the best conversations on the show. Today with John, we begin with a discussion of John's childhood and upbringing and how that time shaped his relationship with money. John shared his insights into what it takes to become a successful stock picker discussing the criteria and metrics he likes to use. We talked about a simple yet powerful investment formula that John shared in one of his articles. He explains key concepts like return on invested capital and valuation and why they matter and how they can contribute to long-term market outperformance. John provided another secret to successful investing, the importance of free cash flow yield. He broke down the concepts for those new to investing, emphasizing their impact on investment return. We discussed the vital signs of a business that a stock analyst looks for, according to John. These include a strong balance sheet, return on invested capital, top-line growth, and bottom-line growth. Moving beyond numbers, John shared his thoughts on evaluating good management, highlighting its significance in successful investing. John described his meticulous approach to conducting stock research, and shared the importance of using a checklist to avoid overlooking crucial information. We delve into the aspects of buying, holding, and selling stocks. John stressed the importance of patience in active investing and the necessity of adapting to changes in circumstances. John offered advice for investors navigating both major market sell-offs and overheated bull markets, emphasizing the lessons that can be learned from both experiences. To conclude, we talk about John's personal definition of success exploring what this term means to him in the context of his investing career. Please help me welcome John Rotanti. All right. Well, hello, John. It's nice to see you again. How are you? I'm doing really well. It's nice to speak with you again, too, and I'm glad to be on the show. Well, I've been looking forward to this. You and I had a, a chat not long ago, and I thought we could sit down and talk more about your adventures, stock picking, what you've learned. But you know that I, I like to start those conversations from the beginning, so if you indulge me, I'm curious about your childhood and upbringing and how that time in particular influenced your relationship with money and then led you to a career in investing. Yeah, so I think my childhood had a very large influence on my relationship with money. So I grew up spoiled, lucky, and privileged, and I thought quite wealthy. We had a beautiful four-story home with a pool, a yard, basketball court, four-car garage. We had a condo in Florida. We had a camp in Mississippi. I had been to Hawaii seven times before graduating high school. And we visited Europe three or four times, traveling all over. And then we went skiing in Snowmass Aspen two or three times every year. So that's just a short list of the things we had and enjoyed and what I'll call our surface level wealth, because on the surface, we looked and felt rich. Optically, Bogomil, we were crushing it through my lower school, middle school, and high school years. At that point, so in high school, I did not know the value of a dollar. I definitely didn't know how markets and economies work. 
And I definitely didn't know the difference between a stock and a bond. So then I get to college as a freshman and I find out that my parents had gotten into severe money troubles. It was a combination of bad advice, greed, stupid mistakes, but my parents ended up going dead broke and eventually filing for bankruptcy. And they sheltered my sisters and I. So my sisters and I had zero clue anything was wrong throughout high school. So then I'm away from home for the first time as a freshman in college, and I find out that my parents are in trouble. That's when I found out. And they're paying for my tuition. It's a private school, you know, like $30,000 tuition. So I want to do something to help. So I decided to go to the library. And by luck, I find One Up on Wall Street by Peter Lynch. It was the first piece of investing literature I ever read. And I read it in a day or two. And the book completely changed my life. It changed the course of my life. It introduced me to this field and this profession that I really didn't even know existed. And I was 18 at the time. And I've been reading about and thinking about investing and businesses ever since. I'm 42 years old today, and I've never stopped reading about investing, and I don't think I'll ever stop. And that's that's the story, and I think it's a, a sad story on some levels because it also forever changed my relationship with my parents because I found out that they had been lying to me for so long. So that's the sad part. Uh, but like I said, through that struggle, and it was a terrible emotional struggle, the trajectory of my life changed and I found a profession that I'm good at and that I thoroughly enjoy. And this life circumstance firmly put value investing into my DNA. I saw what a growth at any cost mentality can lead to. That was the life that my parents were living, a growth at any cost mentality. I saw what it can lead to. And what I learned is that it can lead to blow ups and financial ruin. And so now I live my life by rule number one, and I insist on a margin of safety in pretty much everything I do. No, I love that. And thank you for sharing this story. And, you know, I think those experiences mold us to the investors that we become. And I yeah. think the same for me, I picked up the book One Up on Wall Street, too, that you yeah. and I talked about briefly. Mm -hmm. And I was at the university and I was taking courses in economics and business. And we did options pricing, very sophisticated, complex tools that we were learning and nobody really sat down with me and said stocks are small pieces of businesses and you get to own a collection of them and it's really secondary if you have billions or if you have hundreds of dollars you can become a shareholder of wonderful businesses yes around you and some of them you might already know i think the big lesson from peter lynch was that you already know quite a few of those businesses because you use their services and goods and i think peter lynch did a remarkable job with that book introducing so many of us to the world of investing. Absolutely. So one big question I have for you, since, you, since you're the award-winning and highest-ranked uh, stock picker at Motley Fool at different points in time, I'm curious what it takes to become a successful stock picker. So anybody curious listening to this, both experienced people that want to become better stock pickers and those that have never picked a stock, what does it take to become a successful stock picker? So... I would describe successful stock picking as just indexing. Honestly, the stock market has returned 10% over a long period of time. Mm -hmm. And that's just an incredible gift. If you invest $10,000 once and never, ever invest another penny, and you can compound at 10% for 40 years, you end up with 452000 That's a 45 bagger for doing absolutely nothing. So on some level, that's a lot of success. 
right. 45 bags for, for doing nothing. But to do significantly better than the market over a long period of time of time and to achieve greatness as an investor, I do think is incredibly difficult. And I think it takes some combination of number one, talent, number two, harder work than you can imagine, often at the expense of other things in your life, unfortunately. And number three, the right mindset. So let's start with talent. I think I think a great investor needs to have certain skill sets around accounting, financial statement analysis, business model analysis, competitive advantage and barriers to entry analysis, base rates, capital allocation, and valuation, right? And then they need to understand complexity and how the world works. They need to understand fade and corporate life cycles. I think they need to have a repeatable research process. I think that over time, a robust, repeatable process can increase the odds of better outcomes. And to become great at these skills, like any skill set, I think it takes repetition. You got to shoot a lot of free throws, right? You got to hit a lot of putts or whatever it's called. You got to putt a lot of putts. I think it takes repetition, but more than repetition because you can't just go through the motion. So it's not just simple repetition. I think it takes a degree of deliberate repetition or deliberate practice. Um, you have to study hundreds of businesses in depth over years and decades. So it's a cumulative compounding process, but I think you must relentlessly, relentlessly exercise those muscles in a deliberate fashion. So it takes time to build these skill sets and with time comes experience. So that's number one. Um, I think great investors all share a similar emotional makeup or mindset as well. I think they're contrarian by nature, and I th and I think that they think in terms of probabilities and opportunity cost. They are comfortable being alone and looking wrong. They run from FOMO like the plague. They're independent thinkers that enjoy reading and thinking and connecting the dots. They understand that the crowd is average at best. They say no to almost everything, Bogomil, which is the exact opposite of what the average investor does. And finally, for mindset, they are confident in their talent and their work, but extremely humble. They are learning machines, and the only way to learn and grow is to be extremely open and honest about mistakes. So they have this growth mindset and this mindset that is flexible and open. So, you know, I think there's more to it, but that's a good place to start, which is to think of investing greatness as a set of skill sets that are relentlessly practiced and then an emotional fortitude and an emotional di discipline that is incredibly different from that of the herd. So you mentioned that I was the highest ranked stock picker during my almost nine years at The Motley Fool. So let me explain that a bit. So each analyst at The Motley Fool is required to manage a model portfolio, and the quant team tracks our performance across three metrics. Number one, our performance relative to the S&P 500 since inception, and this program was incepted over eight years ago, and I was there when it was incepted. Number two, our accuracy ratio, which measures how many of our stock picks go up versus go down, and then number three, our information ratio, which is a a measure of risk-adjusted returns that incorporates the Sharpe ratio. When I left The Motley Fool, I was in first place across all three of those metrics that we tracked. 
And I did lead by a significant margin, I think. The last performance screenshots that I had were from March 2023. Um, and when you compare those to, let's say, January 2023, my performance actually improved across several metrics, including relative to the S&P 500 since inception, accuracy ratio since inception, accuracy ratio three-year, and accuracy ratio one year. I think that this performance record shows that my top priority has always been preserving capital first and making sure the portfolio does not break and avoiding blowups. I'll just finish this by saying, I do not think that I'm a great investor. I know we started this question asking what I think it takes to be great. And I think I have some thoughts there because I study the greats and I have networked with many of the greats and received mentorship from many of the greats. And so I think I have an idea of what it takes, Bogomil, and I think I have a plan to possibly get there one day, maybe, possibly, but I do not think that I'm great. I, I, I just think that I have studied what it takes. You know, I, I recently talked to Luca Delana, who wrote a book, Ergodicity. I don't know if you're familiar with the book or with Luca. Absolutely. I was introduced to the concept of ergodicity by Brinton John, so I know you also know oh, yes. at, at NZS Capital. <laughs> So very familiar with the concept. So when I'm listening to I'm hearing staying in the game is what really matters to I you so. and I, I think to the long-term success of, invest, of any investor. But I think also that from anybody looking inside from the outside, investing sounds like an easy place where you can make money without much effort. And people come in and see it as a casino. And actually, I think my professors, when I was going to school and the dot-com bubble just burst, they were telling us that the stock market is a casino. And I, I think it can be. You can make it whatever you want it to be, but it can also be a place where you accumulate shares of businesses that you respect. And you'll, we'll talk more about what kind of businesses these are. Yes. And you see it as a lifelong pursuit. And I think the key word here is a lifelong pursuit. And what would it take for you to make it a lifelong pursuit and what kind of habits you need yeah. to do it? And I think the beauty of it, as you said, is just the fact that you own successful businesses, even within an index, so in a passive way, you're participating in the ongoing growing success of a variety of businesses in the country or in the world. Yes. So you can take a step further and choose some of the businesses. You can supplement the passive way with some stock picks. You can have a whole range of different portfolios that work for you. And I always think of the quality of sleep. For some people, certain portfolios won't allow them to sleep. And I think that's that's a hint right there. Maybe you shouldn't own it. Some people say that on, on a Friday when you walk away from your computer, if you couldn't sell anything for the next few months because you got stranded on an island, would you be happy with the portfolio? Basically, Absolutely. what kind of a portfolio would you be okay with not touching for a long time? I think it's a nice test to have. And I think a lot of stocks go out the window right away. I go ahead. Yeah, I, I, I love that filter, the sleep test and the, you know, if you're stranded on an island set test. I, I think those are two great filters. And there are some investments that you do have to, I mean, more speculations, you have to check on almost daily. And maybe you just don't want to have them because there might be a time that you won't be in a position to sell them and they can derail your long term success here. In one of your articles, you share a, a simple-sounding formula, but I think it's, it's, it's hard to implement, and I'm curious about your thoughts. You say, if you want to outperform the market over the long term, 
buy stocks in growing companies that generate high or rising returns on invested capital at fair or better valuations. For those less familiar with those concepts, can you tell us what these are and how do we find those companies and why those particular metrics you think matter in the long-term results in, to an investor? Yeah, so everything in that statement can be backed up by data. So mm -hmm. let's talk about what we know based on what the data says. What we know is that companies with sustainably high returns on invested capital beat the market over time. What we know is that companies with improving returns on invested capital beat the market even more. Mm -hmm. The data that I used and compiled was from S&P Global Market Intelligence, and it supports this claim that our high R sustainably high ROIC beats the market and improving ROIC beats the market even more. But if you don't want to trust my data, that's fine. A very recent article, and by very recent, I mean like within the last two weeks, put out by Michael Mobison also supports this. So that's the ROIC component. We also know that companies with low multiples, and I'm talking about low price to earnings ratios or high free cash flow yields, beat the market over time as well. So in the article that you are referencing, you can see the data around companies that have high free cash flow margins. That's actually a measure of profitability, but also high free cash flow yields just destroy the market over time. Once again, if you don't want to believe my data, I have an entire PowerPoint just showing all the research from a variety of highly respected large institutional firms showing that high free cash flow yield is the single best predictor of forward rate of return. And Bogomil, if you remind me, after we get off, I'll, I'll email you that slide deck and you can see all of the sources showing that free cash flow yield is the single best predictor. So that's the second part, low multiples, low valuations. And then, you know, that I was talking about free cash flow yield there, but if we just look at PE ratio really quickly, Ed Easterling at Crestmont Research has put out incredible research and visuals showing that a low starting PE leads to higher long-term returns and a high starting PE leads to lower returns over time. Mm -hmm. So that's the multiple part. And then, you know, Joel Greenblatt demonstrated with the magic formula, even just paying, you know, he demonstrated that buying high ROIC stocks at high earnings yields, which is what we just talked about, beats the market over time. But then you can take it a step further. You can actually take quality out of it. I hate to say this because I'm a quality type of person, but you can take quality completely out of the equation. And low multiple stocks absolutely crush the market over time because of mean reversion. And Tobias Carlisle shows this in the acquired multiple. Huh? And then finally, we know that per share growth. So now the third component of that formula growth is very important because over time, stocks follow earnings up over mm -hmm. time. So those are the three components of the formula, each of which can be supported by overwhelming amounts of data. Number one, higher rising returns on invested capital. Number two, per share value growth. And then number three, cheap valuations. Can you talk more about the, the long term? What kind of time horizon those studies cover and how it gets evaluated? Is it over 20 years or is it over year three, five? Is it rolling periods? Can you talk more about that? It's rolling returns, I think, for the most part. I think in the data that we use, we looked back 20 years, but I'd have to double check that. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I, I would define long term as definitely more than 10. And, and, you know, into the 20 year range and long. When you think about the underlying logic, 
when you ask yourself, why would I buy shares in a company, right? Whether it's public or private, you would buy it for the profits and you would prefer the profits go up and you go beyond profits. You talk about the free cash flow, right? So after the reinvestment in the business, any, any capital needs that the business might have. But then this is one side of the story. And the second side of the story that you mentioned is it's important how much you end up paying for the business, right? So it's the valuation part. And if you can combine broadly defined quality, rising profits, better business, and so on with the right price, the two together should provide superior results in the long run. It's interesting that we spend so much time talking about our performance in the investment world. And there will be times when this approach will underperform for sure. other styles. And I'm thinking you know, momentum broadly defined when stocks are going up because they have gone up. And it, it happens and again and again. I had an interesting conversation with somebody that I think for investors, the bear markets are tough, but I think the bull markets are harder because the neighbor is getting richer than you are. <laughs> yeah, And it makes people change their approach very quickly and go places where they shouldn't go. What I saw in 21, 22, even really smart people, seasoned investors started to tweak their investment approach just to keep up with the ever-rising, faster-rising market. Do you have some thoughts about that? So you, you picked the right stocks, you paid the right pr price, yet you're still underperforming sometimes for a prolonged period of time. You know, that's kind of what we talked about with what it takes to be great. You know, those investors are contrarian by nature. They're comfortable owning what everybody else is selling. They're comfortable buying what everybody else is selling. Mm -hmm. They've built that conviction based on their research and they are comfortable, once again, to use another Tobias Carlisle, zigging when others are zagging. They're comfortable being alone. That's where they're most happy. At the same time, though, it doesn't mean that they, you know, hold beyond a point that no longer makes sense. They right. are, I think the greats are also very willing to change their mind. They're very capable of adapting and course correct when the data suggests that they got something wrong. And so, you know, I just think it's, it's having that emotional discipline, having that mindset of knowing that you're not going to herd into what the market is doing. I'm also thinking if you're managing money for other people, it's important to have the right client base for the investment style that you have. Yes. And yes. it's very hard to notice and see. And everybody says that they're long-term investors and you can have a very hypothetical discussion about the, the risks and the rewards. It's all very intangible. And I think it's really helpful to go through the first downturn and through a very big bull market with a new client to actually see how they react to those markets, what it's like to see that the account is down, you know, 10, 20%, maybe more. There were times when the whole index was down more, more than that. And also to go for a bull market to see how they react when their neighbors are getting richer than they are. And I think you can learn a lot about each other in the process. And I think the biggest blessing of an investor, professional investor is to make sure that the, the clients that you have, they're really on the same page with you, not just in the easy years, but also in the tough years. I agree so much. And you know, you do that by the way you communicate with them through the literature you put out, the letters you put out, annual meetings you may hold. All of those things help you as a money manager, hopefully attract the right client base. 
but you know, as you say, you learn the most about clients living together through a major market sell-off or through a raging mania. And you know, this is hard, and unfortunately for some, and fortunately for others, the emotions of the collective herd are never going to change. Markets always cycle between extreme fear and extreme greed. As Howard Marks says, the pendulum swings violently between the extremes, and it's rarely comfortably and benignly in the middle of that pendulum. This is destructive, unfortunately, for some investors, and it creates buying and selling opportunities of a lifetime for other investors. Investors don't really know what type of investor they are until they've lived through both extremes of the cycle. I think investors should journal how they feel and what decisions they are making during the extremes, in the moment. And then when things calm down a bit, go back, read your journal, and learn from it. But you know this type of learning is incredibly hard because emotions do take over. My advice for someone that is susceptible to emotionally buying and selling, and you know that's probably most people, my advice is either to do what the valuation and the model tells you to do. Mm -hmm. So have some framework that guides you or just index. I think nearly everyone should index a lot of their money. And that includes myself. 100% of my 401k is indexed. You know, it's interesting. You mentioned Peter Lynch, and I'll look up the article where somebody did a study, or maybe even Peter Lynch mentioned it himself, how if you look at the performance of his fund that was really successful for 12, 13 years. 30%, right? 29% over 13 years. Ending in the early 90s, if I remember right, correctly. Then he or somebody for him or somebody in that research piece was looking at the average returns of an actual shareholder in the fund a person that was actually invested. So kind of an average dollar invested. It was nothing close to that amount. And it has nothing to do with the manager. It has everything to do with the, the temperament of the actual fund investor or you know client because they try to get in and get out and they get in when everybody tells them this is the attractive time and prices are going up and they want to get out when it's very uncomfortable to hold on. So do you have some thoughts about that? So you might have a really well-performing index or a well-performing fund, but then the average investor in that fund might have returns that have nothing to do with what the, the chart or the table shows. Yeah, there's lots of research that has looked into this over the years. Morningstar's done research. You know, investors buy and sell at the wrong time, on average, yeah. because of greed and fear, which at the market level, Mm -hmm. At the herd level, it's never going to change. You know, in Joel Greenblatt's book, the little book that beats the market, he he asks, you know, he poses the question to himself in the book, why would I give away this amazing secret? And then he answers it. The reason is because um, people won't do it. <laughs> people won't do it. Even if they have all of the information, all of the data supporting it, it at some point, emotions take over for a lot of people. You know, you, you talk about fear and greed, and Buffett says to be fearful when others are greedy and be greedy when others are fearful. And zigzagging, as, as you mentioned, you know, we 
consider ourselves contrarians at C-Card. We try to go in when other people don't want to go in, but in situations that make sense to us, not not blindly. Of course, of course. Uh, sometimes people take an umbrella and you say you won't take an umbrella, but it will rain. You know, there are days when it's going to rain and you bring an umbrella. It's uh, You don't question the crowd all the time. You question the crowd sometimes. I think that's what, where it gets lost. Yeah. But I want to explore envy a little bit. You know, we say fear and greed. And I was rereading some of transcripts from Buffett's older meetings and the word envy comes up and they joke about envy uh, how envy is the sin that brings you the least fun and joy because <laughs> that's what Munger has said yeah I think, right yeah so i thought about it and i read it somewhere that it's envy that drives the markets at times much more than than the, the well obviously the fear comes in but the greed i think it's really the fact that other people are getting richer faster than you that gets us into the most trouble and i think it was jp morgan that said that no more money was lost because of the neighbor getting richer than any any other way. I think it's really fascinating because if we were in a room and had no exposure to anybody else, I think we could get further ahead. But we get oh. exposed to, to to so much, and then eventually we give in. And absolutely, yep. you know, there's probably you know no phrase that I have tweeted out more over the last two and a half years since I've been on Twitter than "Run from FOMO like it's your job." Because it is almost, yeah. you know, I literally probably tweeted that two dozen times because it's so important. If you look at some of the great investors and, you know, this has been, this has been well documented, for example, in William Green's book, Richard Weiser Happy, mm. a lot of the investors go to great length, a lot of the greats go to great lengths to remove themselves from the crowd. Yes. To to block out as much of the noise and, and the BS as they can. And mm -hmm. so they, you know, live in Omaha or in the Bahamas or, you know, or Switzerland. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they do things like create reading rooms at their offices. Don't put their Bloomberg screens in their office so that they have to go, you know, down the hall or up the stairs or down the stairs to actually get to the screen. They don't keep a TV in their office. And then some go to such lengths that they make, they put the Bloomberg in such a place where it's uncomfortable, mm -hmm. right? And so they have to like kneel or bend over to read the Bloomberg screen. And that uncomfort means they're not going to be there for a long time. And so, you know, some of them create environments that increase the odds of success. And one of the things they do is they remove themselves from all of that envy, from all of that noise. I like that. And it's a bigger idea of the habits that you create as yes. an investor, right? And yes. if you want, if something is desirable, then you create ways to have more of it in your life. And if something is not desirable, then you find ways to make it harder so you, you don't have exposure to it. And we're all humans at the end of the day. And I think just the awareness of your own weaknesses can help you really get ahead. You don't have to be the, the best of the best. You just be aware of what can get you in trouble and find ways to do less of it or not do it, whether it's you know, trading too much or acting on the, the stories you overhear. What are your thoughts about information consumption or media consumption? And I've had quite a few conversations, especially in the last few years, how a lot of people that I respect in the field consciously decided to limit how much outside noise they consume and their filters went up even more do you have some thoughts about it i feel like it's one of the the tricks or the, the secrets that can help investors too 
I th- I think without a doubt. You know, I think I think that the the way you're going to build the muscle, exercise the muscle, build the skill set is to read as much about businesses and industries as you can. If we're talking about a bottoms up fundamental stock picking here, is to read about as many businesses as you can and as many management teams as you can. That's not going to happen through the media. You know, I'm talking about reading earnings transcripts and reading CEO letters and reading 10Ks and reading 10Qs. And I'm talking about going back 10 years or longer and reading them. And, the, you know, proxies, and you know, on and on down the list. And then once you've read the, you know, the SEC filings, that, that sort of primary research, mm-hmm. you know, then you do your Phil Fisher scuttlebutt. You, you, you reach out to competitors, you reach out to employees, you reach out to former employees, you reach out to suppliers. One of the great benefits that we had at the Motley Fool when I was there was we had this incredible network of, of subscribers, of members, and we had these chat rooms. And so if you are, if I am, use myself as, as an example, if I am researching a home builder, I can go onto that chat room and find a professional home builder to ask questions. You know, I can find someone building 20 or 30 homes a year, hmm. you know, a, a self-employed proprietor home builder. If I'm inter- if I'm interviewing a company that has a medical device, I can go on that ch- on those chat rooms and find surgeons, you know, using those medical devices, putting those medical devices into their patients. And you know, on and on down the list. And so those are industry insiders, industry experts using the tools and the products and the services day in and day out. I don't have that experience. And so that's another level of research that needs to be done, I think, to get a complete, thorough, rigorous understanding of a business and the industry it operates in. And you're not going to get that for the most part from the media or from, you know, different, you know, media sites and stuff like that. It's not, it's, it's hard to get that through the noise. So you have to put yourself in a chair, in a room or on, you know, outside somewhere where you can just read and think all day. I think, you know, I think I read that Buffett even closes the blinds in his office. I mean, they, they just create these greats. They create this environment most well adapted to learning. Uh huh. And that environment could be different for everybody, but you have to, on some level, create that environment for yourself. I like the idea of, I call those, you know, long shelf life ideas. And I'm sure other people use the term, but it spoke to me how anything that somebody shares with me, I'm thinking, does this belong on a, a long shelf life spot in my brain where this could be true or relevant for a long time? And that creates a big filter of all the little weekly noises of somebody said this and somebody said that. There's a rumor, there's a concern about something else, a recession, an interest rate move, and and day-to-day there's so much stimulation. Five years from now, would I even remember what the Fed decided this week? That's what I'm thinking, right? What I would remember is a massive shift in the monetary policy. That's a long shelf life change. But this particular move or that particular move, that's less important, but keeping in mind that, yeah, the long shelf life. Yeah. You know, like you said, it's each incremental fed doesn't tell you a lot but it was the phase shift 
in monetary policy that told us a lot, right? We had 40 years of, of bull market and bonds. We had 40 years of basically falling bond rates, decreasing rates for bonds. We had 30 years of benign inflation. We, and, and money was virtually free going back to 2008. Mm-hmm. It's a long time. You know, we're talking 40, 30 years here. And then all of a sudden in 2021, maybe 2022, that shifts, right? And so that that phase shift or what Howard Marks calls that sea change, mm-hmm. that's something we'll remember. But whether they did 25 or 50 basis points and all of these things, like you said, it just becomes noise at some point. I love your idea of long shelf life lessons and ideas. We can mm-hmm. also talk about long shelf life, life stocks. And I think this is something that doesn't get discussed enough. People just sort of blindly say buy and hold, right? It's like, oh, I'm right. buy and hold investor. But, you know, so ideally, I want to find a stock that I can own for the next 15 or 20 years or longer. Mm-hmm. That way I can trade as infrequently as possible. And I can spend all of my time reading and drinking coffee and laying out by the pool and traveling the world. Things, you know, and going to the gym. Things that I really enjoy. But to find a stock to own for 15 or 20 years, really the business needs to remain healthy and growing. That's one criteria. And then the other criteria is the valuation needs to remain sane. Yeah. So actually... I don't want the valuation to balloon outside a zone of reasonableness because right. then my process, I'm very process oriented. Then my process sell, says that I must sell or trim it, when we get to just really crazy valuations. Having a sell discipline for me is crucial because it is the process and the disciplines that we put in place that allow us to survive decades in the market, in my opinion. And you know, Buffett is, this is nothing new. Buffett has written about this. He's talked about Berkshire stock valuation and, and how he doesn't want it to get too far ahead of itself, yeah. precisely because he doesn't want his long-term shareholders mm-hmm. to feel compelled to sell. Exactly. Uh, yeah. So if you really want a long shelf life stock, if you really want to be a long-term owner, then surely you prefer the stock valuations stay reasonable throughout your holding. I think it elevates your quality of research. And I'm thinking of Chris Mayer and his 100 beggars. He was also a a guest on the podcast. And what I walked away from our conversation is that, well, of course, not all your stocks will be 100x, but that's fine. The minute you start thinking about the next investment as something that could potentially be 100x, which means it will be around long enough it has all the metrics that you mentioned, and it has a business that will prosper over a long period of time and grow and make become 20x, 10x, 50x. Just the fact that you are looking for them, you will be not looking at so many stocks that have 5% upside, 20% upside, you know, 30% upside. You won't be wasting so much time on those. You will be focusing on the ones that have the long shelf life and can really benefit the portfolio in the long run. And the other dimension to it that we talk about is the 100-year vision for the families we work with, the ones that have inherited wealth and the ones that have created wealth in this lifetime. It doesn't mean that all the money has to last 100 years, but the minute you start thinking about a 100-year vision, the quality of the decisions you make immediately goes up. 
and it's aiming for the stars ending up on the moon, you'll still be in a very comfortable place, but you immediately elevated the level of the quality of the research, the work that you do. So that's just the model that I like to think about. Can we talk about the balance sheet? I feel like there's so much discussion always about growth. Fewer people talk about profits, even if you were to talk about free cash flow. But I feel like the balance sheets are forgotten until they matter. But they do matter, especially if you want to hold a business for the long run. And you have some thoughts about strong balance sheets. And I think you put it as a number one on your vital science checklist that you have. Can you talk about that? Yeah. It's my first filter. It's the first mm-hmm. thing that I look at. I, I quickly glance at the balance sheet, at the coverage ratios, at the leverage the business has, because I think that a strong balance sheet is the foundation that a long-term growing business is built on top of. And just as we can't build a, a building or a bridge or whatever it may be on a weak foundation, I don't think we can build a sustainable compounding business on a weak foundation. I do think it's, it's yeah, it's, it's where I start and often where my research ends. If I don't think the balance sheet is strong enough to survive just about anything. And so it is the first question on my checklist of 10 questions and it is one of the you know four or five vital signs that I monitor for every company that I'm researching and then every company in my portfolio and then if you look at my the published article on the checklist that I have out there I think I have like I don't know a dozen questions an investor can ask themselves in order to determine the health of that balance sheet What else would we find on the checklist? And I'm going to include the links, but if you can give us a quick overview, what what else is on that checklist that you like to look at? So that checklist is 10 big questions, and then each question has has sub-questions. And I'll, I'll just say the reason that I like is I'm very, one is that I'm very process-oriented by nature. Mm-hmm. You know, two is it, it allows me to easily it allows me to make sure i'm doing thorough and rigorous research it allows me to make sure i am easily it allows me to easily monitor my companies over time and then number three it 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 forces me to slow down you know a lot of investors are looking for reasons to say yes they buy whatever company is being pumped on tv like we talked about or in the media or on twitter or whatever but if you rigorously adhere to a good checklist you're going to say no to almost to almost everything so if you're looking for ways to say no a checklist is is a very good way but you know we talked about the balance sheet that's a big one i think i give 12 questions to ask about a balance sheet another big part of it is is analyzing the risk profile of the business i think i give I don't even know, 15 or 20 questions to ask when analyzing risk in a business. It talks about, you know, understanding a company's margin and return profile and understanding what is driving a margin increase or decrease. You know, is it pricing power? Is it scale? 
and high operating leverage and incremental margins? Is it a new product launch? Is it a shift in the business from selling lower margin to higher margin products or services? Was it an acquisition or a divestiture? Was it a effective cost cutting program? Was it a change in corporate tax rates? Was it a change in accounting regulations? If, you know, in order to understand whether the margin improvement is sustainable, you have to understand what's driving it. Or in order to understand why margins are decreasing and whether they may normalize back up in the future, you have to understand what's driving it. And so I try to give the questions that you ask yourself to understand the big drivers of business value over time. Before I ask you about the management, can you tell us what's a bad balance sheet? You look at it and, and just looks bad. What, what do you see that makes it bad? You know, you see some balance sheets out there where the company has just more debt than it can service. You see some balance sheets out there, the company has more debt than it has market cap and market value. It's got mm -hmm. very low coverage ratios at a time when the economy may be turning down. And so, you know, you have a situation where you have a company with high capital intensity and high debt leverage, so high financial leverage and high operating leverage, right? right. So operating leverage is great when things are improving, but then you get de decremental margins when things are falling. So mm -hmm. your sales fall, your earnings fall faster than sales, and that means your low coverage ratios become even lower because you have less earnings to service the debt. You know, so just, just things like that. You see some situations where clearly a company had been under-investing in its future, under-innovating for too long. It had been just spending money on, let's say, buybacks or a dividend. So now you've got a situation where it's losing large amounts of market share pretty rapidly. And so in order to turn things around, it now has to start investing in its future again, which it, which it no longer has a habit of doing, right? It's, it's no longer part of the corporate culture. Instead, the corporate culture sort of just became you know, mortgaging its future to, to buy back a lot of stock and pay a growing dividend. So now it's got to turn that ship, and that's hard to turn quickly. And so if, it's, if it wants to catch up, if it wants to staunch the bleeding and start, staunch the market share losses, then you know it's got to make the tough decision of maybe cutting the dividend. So those are some of the things you can look at. But the checklist goes to all the metrics that, you, that can sort of give you, give you indicators and flags. So leverage helps people look like geniuses when things are working out because it, and it's an extra boost. And, but then in times of distress, leverage can get you in trouble. And I noticed that if it's a variable interest rate on the debt and some short-term, near-term maturities, you have even fewer options. And I think the, the main concern here is to have a business that has options and can manage through different and difficult times and flourish actually in those times. So the more leverage you have and the worse it's structured, as you mentioned, you just run out of options and at the end of the day, if everything goes wrong, it's a bankruptcy. When people think about it, a company that has no debt cannot go bankrupt unless there's a lawsuit with, you know, some, you know, a major fraud and so on. But an honest business with no leverage cannot, cannot go bankrupt. 
I think that's some, something worth thinking about. It's definitely something worth thinking about. You know, I, I maybe even go further and say that most blowups, most business blowups have been because of too much debt. I don't have everything else I've talked about on this show. I have hard data. I don't have hard data to support that, but I bet I could find it without too much research that most blowups are because of too much debt. You know, I don't avoid debt. Sometimes debt can be used intelligently and strategically. You just want to understand whether it's the appropriate amount of debt, whether the company could even take on more leverage in certain mm -hmm. situations, but also why management is using it. Is it because they're not self-funding and they're reliant on capital markets, or is it because they're doing something smart and intelligent with that money? You know, maybe maybe boost returns on equity or something like that. Last thing I'll say is, you know, you mentioned options. That options, those options, that optionality comes from free cash flow over time. Right. Because having that cash is like oxygen, you know, when you need. And so having a great management team that knows what to do with that cash and then having the ability to generate that cash and invest it counter cyclically, that can, that can create some great optionality over time. Well, speaking of management, it's more of a qualitative evaluation in many cases. And I can give you some extreme examples. I was in a room with a management and I just felt very uncomfortable. And I joked that I wouldn't leave my wallet with them. And I, I came back and we didn't invest in something. And at the time, I couldn't put my finger on any number or any statistic or any data point. It was just an impression of how they communicated. And I thought, I'm better off just skipping this one. And then a few years later, there was an accounting fraud. The management was removed and the stock collapsed. Yeah. So... Can you talk about the management? Sometimes it's, it might be easier to not participate when you don't like the management, but then on the positive side, evaluating the good and the great, what does it take? How do you know? Yeah. You know, I think we could probably do a whole year-long class just on, on management, but just like studying businesses, in order to tell the exceptional management teams from the average ones, I think investors need to study hundreds of different management teams. And you need to study those teams over time, over a full market cycle or hopefully multiple market cycles. And then over time, certain CEOs and their management teams stand out to you and create a mental model for what great corporate leadership should look like, in your opinion. And you know, you know, maybe you put Buffett and Munger on that list, or or almost surely, I should say, you put Buffett and Munger on that list, and you know, Jim Senegal and Craig Jelinek and Tim Cook and Craig Manier and Greg Hensley, and there's some other ones. And you create a list of 20 Hall of Famers, let's say, and you study them relentlessly. You try to get to know them. You try to speak to them. And that forms your mental model framework. You know, I did create a simple framework that I called the four C's. And those C's are a leader and their management team that are compassionate, candid, committed, and capable. Compassionate just means that they work hard to care for all stakeholders because they know that taking care of stakeholders is probably the best best path to sustain profit growth and long-term value creation for shareholders. They think of their stakeholders as, as a web or one big system or machine, and to get that machine to pump out increases in per share value over time, each component of that system must be cared for. So 
That's compassion. Candid just means they tell us what we need to know as owners of the business, and they do so in a timely and clear manner. They are just as transparent about their mistakes and failures and the lessons learned as they are about their wins and their successes. It means they talk to us plainly and matter-of-factly with brutal honesty, and they don't give us you know, BS metrics or BS excuses. Committed, you know, they can show commitment by inside ownership. They can show commitment by personally buying the stock when the stock gets slammed at the downside. But then also they're committed to doing what is best for the business and growing per share intrinsic value over the long term. And then finally, capable means they are talented and, and equally so at operating the business and at capital allocation. And then those four C's create a culture of long-term value creation. And that culture leads to long-term compounding. So maybe when you add in culture and compounding, you actually get six C's. No, I love that. Yeah. You know, I was listening to you and thinking, and I wrote it down, the errors of omission and commissioning investing. Yeah. So you you wish you bought something or you wish you didn't buy it. And and Buffett talks about it. I'm I'm curious about your thoughts. And I think I personally don't mind that I miss out on some things. I could not get comfortable with it and went up, whatever it happened. And then the commissions are the ones that I pay a lot of attention to. You know, I wish I didn't buy it or I wish I didn't hold it so long. Can you talk about the omission and commission world of investing errors out there? Yeah, you know, I I agree with you. I don't think about errors of omission almost ever. But, you know, maybe, maybe one of the biggest, definitely the biggest error of omission I've ever made, and maybe one of the biggest investing mistakes I've ever made, I, I don't know yet, is not buying oil and gas companies when oil went negative. Uh, and it's not like I didn't know. You know, I, I was co-hosting a show at the time with my dear friend, Bill Mann. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Bill Mann said, this is a buying opportunity of a lifetime. You know, you had Carl Icahn literally buying oil at negative $40 a barrel or something like that. And, I'm, you know, I'm aware of my dear friend that I admire, Bill Mann, telling me I'm aware of what Carl Icahn is doing. And, you know, I, I didn't do it. So that is one that I do think about a bit, but for the most part, I don't think about errors of omission too much. On the commission side, I don't have a lot of blowups because I hit four singles and doubles. You know what I mean? I stick to my checklist relentlessly and I focus on quality businesses. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what I would consider to be the best businesses in the world, at least for my larger positions. And so when you're buying the best businesses in the world, if I'm right on the business, a lot of times, you know, maybe the stock underperforms and that's an opportunity cost, but it's not a blow up because, you know, like I said, rule number one and margin of safety guides, not just my investing, but pretty much everything in my life. So I'm thinking about how, how I look at it. I have a no zero policy. So I try not to, well, the goal is not to buy in any stocks that at the point when I'm buying, I can imagine a scenario that it could be a zero. And for example, when the banks were failing a few months ago, anybody that was tr- still stepping in and hoping that those banks will not go bust, 
he or she must have known that it's a potential zero. And they ended up being you know, write-offs. And it's not the only situation. There are others with a lot of leverage where you go in and you hope that this will turn around from a dollar when it sold off. And I'm thinking the financial crisis and, and quite a few companies were really under a lot of stress. These are the situations where you could see a zero. So if you, sure. and I choose to eliminate the potential zeros, then I might be missing out on those incredible turnaround opportunities that nobody saw. But at the same time, the quality of sleep matters to me and I choose not to have those at all. I think the minute quality you... Of, yeah, quality yeah. of sleep is an important point, but also it goes back to if you want to find a stock you can own for 20 years, mm -hmm. right? That means you're not trading it. You're just owning it. You really, you really want to find a super high quality business that's growing its intrinsic value at a moderate pace for a sustained period of time and that the valuation stays sane. Those are the two criteria. When you buy something that's beaten up like that, that has the potential to zero, then trading becomes more important. Then you have to think, okay, I bought it low. It's gone. It, it, it has worked out for me. It's gone up 50%. It's gone up 75%. Maybe it's gone up 100%. Then you have to ask yourself, do I sell it? Because you know maybe it's not that type of long shelf life business that you want in your portfolio. So trading and selling and making that decision becomes more of an issue when you buy these sort of you know really, really beaten down stocks. Now, to be fair, because I am a value investor and because I do... I, I have a position sizing framework where it allows me to take some, you know, calculated gambles. I couldn't help myself, to be fair. I did buy a couple of banks when they were getting crushed. But the position <laughs> yeah, the position size is so small that it's almost just like a test to see if I was right in my analysis. I don't think it's really gonna make me rich, honestly. You know, but the beauty of investing is that everybody chooses their spot. You know, there's yeah. no one right or wrong way to go about it. Some people have five stocks. Some people have 500 stocks. Some people have a whole portfolio full of what I would call potential zeros. And there are others that would never own a potential zero, right? So as long as you know where you are and what you own and why you own, then you have a very different approach and you may as well be very successful. And we also have different tolerance when it comes to how we sleep. You know, some people can sleep with a lot more on their mind than I can. So you just choose the place where you belong and you're honest with yourself. And hopefully your clients are on the same page with you when they look at the portfolio at the end of the day. You know, you mentioned some people own five stocks. And I think this is a, another point that doesn't get enough discussion. You know, and it's, we talked about the greats say no to almost everything. Almost every opportunity they study, every idea that goes across it, their desk, they say no. And, you know, everyone admires Nick Sleep and everyone talks about him on Twitter and everyone shares his awesome letters and quotes his amazing and awesome wisdom. But at the end of the day, and he is that good, he is that good. And I admire him that much as well. But at the end of the day, very few people, almost no one, invest like Nick Sleep. Right, because Nick Sleep is an incredibly independent thinker that owns four stocks. That right. means he said, seriously, he owns four. We know that. So that means he said no to ninety-five to ninety-nine percent of the ideas that he studied. Same for mm -hmm. Munger. Everyone admires Munger, but he, but Munger owns three stocks. Right. So to be clear, I'm not advocating that people own three stocks. 
I am advocating what you just said, which was know thyself. Right. Know thyself. Don't pretend to be someone you're not. Don't pretend to have a skill set you don't, because that's how you get yourself into financial trouble. I think nearly every single you know person should should index you know a good portion of their money. Yeah. I also wrote down when we talked about mistakes. There's this peculiar n mistake that I think about quite a bit is about selling too early. And so you've done the research, you found the right business, you paid the right pr price, and it has already performed. And it's a question of, is this a stock you could hold over your lifetime, or maybe even pass it on, or is it a stock you should sell? And I think it's an interesting challenge, especially for very disciplined value investors that have some sort of an intrinsic value in mind. And when that value gets exceeded, and you touched on it with Buffett trying to promote a situation where Berkshire is not too overvalued at any yes. given time. But it may happen that you bought something at the right price and now it's overvalued by so much that it's hard for you to hold on to it. And me personally, I figured a way to manage it by gradually, the same way we gradually buy, we also gradually sell. So even if the stock has more room to go up, we're not exiting all of it at the same time. It helped me And one of the portfolio managers told me the idea of holding on almost to this, you know, symbolic one single share on the way out so that you still have something. I think it, you need more than one share, but the idea that you still leave something in the portfolio of an idea that worked out so well because it might have more room to run. But I think everybody has to figure out their way, whether it's a gradual sale or holding on to that one last share, whatever works or blindly never selling, that's also an option if you have an ongoing cash flow coming to the portfolio from outside that funds new purchases, you may choose to never sell, a, a coffee can kind of portfolio too. So I think it's it's a wide range of ways to, to deal with it. Do you have some thoughts about that? I agree with you. Selling is harder for me than buying, and I almost never buy. You know, I think, I hope, I in an average year, I, I, I log into my brokerage account two or three times. This is the honest truth. I, I don't even log in except for two or three times a year. And, you know, two of those times is to buy. And, you know, one of those times is to get my tax documents. So selling is hard. I rarely do it. As I mentioned earlier, the ideal situation for me is to find a great growing business that is nearly impossible to replicate selling at a cheap valuation. Then I buy the stock and then I hold that stock for 20 years or longer. That way, the business is compounding for me. The stock is rising. Excuse me. Maybe I'm getting paid a growing dividend and I don't have to do shit, honestly. Yeah. I don't have to trade to make money. But that situation, as we discussed, requires two things. The company's fundamentals must remain healthy and the company must continue to grow at a moderate pace over a long duration. And number two, the valuation must remain sane. When the valuation goes extreme and insane to the upside, I force myself to use my sell discipline and I either sell out or trim. Most likely I trim for all of the reasons that you just explained. Sometimes, probably all the time, I'll end up selling too early because valuation can remain insane for longer than you, know, than you think it can. But I'm okay with that. Because my first goal is always and forever rule number one, because all I want to do is survive. I want to be in this game a very 
long time. And then the other reasons I sell is if I think I was wrong or the company does something stupid, immoral, or illegal. I rarely need to sell to raise funds for another idea because I tend to run with a decent amount of cash. I like the sound of that. John, I, I have one last big question for you that I like to ask. It's the definition of success in, in, in personal life, in professional life. How do you know you're on the right track? So I don't think I have any worldly wisdom to share, but I'm going to try. So I think the common definition you hear about financial success, specifically financial success, is having the freedom to spend the time in the manner that we want to, that we want to spend it, to do what we want with our time when we want. And, you know, I pretty much love that definition of financial success. Beyond that, the ultimate definition of career success for me personally is to help change people's lives for the better. That's why I got into this game when I was 18, 24 years ago, because my parents had received some terrible financial advice and I wanted to be the type of financial teacher or the type of investor that could give helpful, even life-changing financial advice. And the reason I will be forever grateful to The Motley Fool is because they allowed me to do that for nine years. When I announced that I was leaving The Motley Fool, the heartwarming notes that I received on Twitter and through email saying that I did, in fact, change some people's lives for the, be for the better, that's the greatest gift I have ever received. And the greatest accomplishment of my life to date. So that's on the career side. Maybe also on the career side, my next goal is to challenge myself in new ways and push myself in new ways and work with and get mentored by people that are much more experienced than me and much better. And then finally, success would be living a brutally honest life, never bullshitting myself, never bullshitting anybody else. I want to live peacefully, I want to live a simple life. I want to live a conflict-free life. I want to be a good partner to my girlfriend, a good son, a good brother, a good uncle, a good friend. And I hope to live a long, healthy, strong life and to die with as few regrets as possible. I don't think anything I just said is groundbreaking or much different from how other people measure success, but that's all I've got. No, I think it's beautiful, John. And I love both parts, the professional and the personal. And I think they They work together when you really think about it, right? If you're happy on, on the personal side, you're going to be happy on the professional side. And they, they feed on each other and they co coexist happily together. I like the sound of that. Yeah, I agree with you there. John, this was wonderful. And thank you so much for taking the time. I learned a lot and I hope the audience gets inspired to think of investing in a different way, given your experience, and either go with the, the passive index way, which is as good as anything else, or if they want to pick some stocks on their own, I think you gave them enough pointers to know where to look and what to avoid and what to look for and where the best results can be found. So thank you so much. And I will include all the links that you shared with me so people can explore more and learn about your checklists and all the details that you shared today. Thank you so much for having me on your really wonderful show. You're doing, you're doing good work. You're helping people. And I appreciate you for Thank John, thank you so much. Until next time. You were listening to Talking Billions. 
We talk about big ideas, big inspirations, big topics. We take on the hardest subject of all, money. But our conversations lead us to an even bigger question, what it means to live a rich life beyond money. If you enjoyed the show, please take a moment and follow, subscribe, rate, and share with friends and family. We rely on word of mouth to promote the show. One click for you means the world to us. Thank you. Until next time, your host, Bogomil Baranowski. The content of this podcast is for general informational purposes only, and so are the opinions of members of Seacard Associates, a registered investment advisor and guests of the show. This podcast does not constitute a recommendation to buy or sell any specific security or financial instruments or provide investment advice or service. Past performance is not indicative of future results. More information on Seacard Associates is available in its Form ADV disclosure documents available at advisorinfo.sec.gov.